10-year cycle on billion-dollar budgets, it wasn't going to be sustainable into the future, particularly given, frankly, a lot of the threats that we were seeing from our adversaries. They were moving much faster. And so you'll have similar kind of things happen in space around the poles, around the north and the south. It will be very congested, and it's going to have to be very regulated and controlled. And other orbits are just not going to be as congested. So there is already some lessons from the internet being applied in space in the sense of a castle with no doors is very hard to break into as opposed to the internet where it's a free marketplace, everyone's there. It's very easy for anyone to be a bad actor. This is the ProCo 360 podcast. I'm Dave Tabor hosting ProCo 360 because I love Colorado and I love getting to know Colorado's entrepreneurs. Today's episode features Dirk Wallinger, CEO of York Space Systems. York is a Colorado-based aerospace company that designs and builds satellites and provides related launch and operation support for spacecraft. It was recently valued at over a billion dollars and its clients include government and Fortune 500 companies. Of course, I'm fascinated with York. It's a mid-sized aerospace company in our state, which also boasts companies like Lockheed, United Launch Alliance, and Raytheon. Dirk and I have agreed to talk about spacecraft to get a better understanding of current capabilities of space and things that are impacting our lives now and what's in development and perhaps We'll talk about what even goes out 10 or even 50 years. Who knows? Hey, Dirk, I invited William Shatner to join us. If he doesn't show up soon, it's just you and me. So glad you could join me on Proco 360. No, I appreciate you having me. Um, you know, we're, we're really happy to be here in Colorado, and I love talking about, you know, what York does and the amazing things we're, we're doing in the state and uh, across the country and throughout the world. Well, and and I got your permission when we were talking about this interview before we even started to that I could ask you a bunch of like silly non geeky questions about satellites. So I'm gonna I'm looking forward to doing that and showing off how little I actually know. But maybe we'll know lots more before we're done. Um, so I you know the overview of your company on the website says you that York was formed to radically improve spacecraft affordability and reliability, transforming and enabling next generation space mission operations worldwide. So is that pretty close to what you do? It is. Um, you know, we're very close to the original vision. And, um, you know, just to step back quickly, I mean, we're I'm very happy to answer any silly questions there are about satellites in space. My kids could care less. So ah. it's actually nice for me to to give some answers to that. But yeah, I mean, we're we are we are very true to the vision. Uh, and and I think that's been part of hopefully why we've we've had some success is the fact that we've stuck by that vision and stuck by a belief. Um, so, you know, the belief, what's the belief? The, the belief is really that, you know, I, I kind of came from traditional aerospace. So I worked at places like Lockheed Martin. I worked at uh, Ball Aerospace also here on Colorado and Orbital Northwest. I worked at them all. Um, and, and, you know, we built really amazing spacecraft and capabilities for the country and, and for the world, frankly, um, which were, I was always very proud to do. Um, but they were done on, you know, timescales of decades. Yeah, um, yeah. And costs of literally billions. Um, and I think that, you know, myself and, and the leaders in the company really saw a vision of that the future would be a little bit different. Um, it would be a lot faster, yeah. uh, a lot more affordable. Uh, and that would, you know, really innovate technology. And you see that same kind of thing with your iPhone, right? That, you know, we, you started off with the big bricks and it got smaller and the technology advanced. And right now you replace your phone probably about every year or two. Uh, and we kind of saw that as being the future of what needed to change. And so that's really what we do with satellites now um, when we talk about affordability and, and rapid deployment. Yeah, the, yeah, but when you when you change a satellite, you're changing new satellites, like right? I mean, you know, people don't throw away their satellites like they throw, well, like they just discard their iPhone or something. 
Sure. Well, it, it turns out that you launch the satellites, they operate for as long as you want. And um, if they're in a lower altitude, they'll come into atmosphere and burn up naturally. Um, but with most of our newer satellites now, they have the capability to deorbit so that we're not continuing to put garbage uh, into space, which is a, is a resource that's important for everyone. Yeah, I want to talk some more about that in a little bit. First, I want to get a better handle of, like, when you're talking about the satellites you're building now and they've gotten smaller, how big are the satellites you're building? So right now we make a couple different spacecraft platforms. Uh, one is about the size of a, a hotel mini fridge, an American hotel mini fridge, I guess I should say. Yeah. Uh, and the larger LX class is about the size of a, a refrigerator or a washer and dryer. Wow. Um, so That's a lot smaller than like what you saw in the 70s James Bond movies, right? It, it is a lot. It is a lot smaller. Now, I did work on the bigger ones, too. Uh, but they're they're really packing in a lot more capability that just wasn't possible. Again, back to the phone analogy, right? There was the Motorola brick, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe a lot of the listeners don't even remember that. Uh, but but now, um, you know, you have tremendously more capability in a lot smaller form factor, and so our industry is not really any different in the sense of same as the phone, same as computing kind of capabilities. Yeah, but the difference is, I mean, ultimately, the economics have to do with. I mean, you still have to leave the Earth's orbit. It still takes a tremendous amount of fuel and a tremendous expense to launch a satellite. So if you're launching them at, you know, however many at a time in one rocket versus one, right? I mean, doesn't that, that changes everything. It really does. You're, you're absolutely right. And uh, that, that changed the entire dynamic of the segment. So, you know, Elon Musk uh, with what he did with, with SpaceX was really amazing. Uh, he, he changed the order, you know, pricing by an order of magnitude. Uh, and in doing so, we brought on a lot of competition, too. So, you know, Tori over at ULA uh, is now a lot more competitive with his launch vehicles as well. Uh, Firefly uh, is a, is another launch company as well. And so there's a lot more competition now and a lot more competition at, at very attractive uh, price points for a company like us where we're depending on that ride to space. Well, are you, to be clear, are you, these aren't. Once you, these satellites get up to space, you they're not yours anymore, right? They, they're being purchased from you by someone else to put them up there, right? It depends. So you still, Do you own satellites in space? We do. We do. So it depends. So the government tends to like to own the satellite. They're doing a little bit more of buying services, but they tend to want to buy the satellite. So, so they buy from us a capability to build it, uh, make sure it's going to work and put it in orbit. And at some point, we hind, hand that capability over to the government. Uh, but but the Fortune 100 tend to be a little bit different. Um, they don't want to own the satellite. Uh, their focus might be on data analytics. It might be logistics. Like a UPS FedEx, that's a logistics company. Uh, a company like uh, John Deere or Caterpillar, um, Porsche, car companies, uh, they're, they're kind of data kind of companies yeah. as so well. So they don't necessarily want to own the satellite. So I always want, I'm getting way ahead of myself. I'm like on page four already. Well, I might, I might be but, doing that. Yeah, I apologize. Yeah, but that's okay. No, 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 that's cool. So, but one of the questions I had is like, is there such a thing as a spec satellite? Like that someone just launches stuff that's not like satellites up into space and then people can do whatever they want on a per X basis. Not, not really, uh, not to date. Um, there are some imaging satellites where you can buy some time on them, but they still yeah. tend to be, I mean, you can buy a picture from them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, uh, Maxar is based here, of course. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's something Maxar does. But but buying a satellite and kind of taking control of it, mm-hmm. uh, we're still not there. Yeah. Um, I'm not positive you, you want to be there. Um, mm. You know, someone could, could do something pretty nefarious with that. Um, and so that's, that's kind of mm. where that risk is. So- so the other companies tend to want someone responsible 
who, who knows what they're doing to operate on their behalf. All right. I want to dig a lot more into how these things operate when I get into the segment where I completely uh, let everybody know that I'm I'm not well-informed on satellites. I'm going to get to the series of questions in a minute, but I want to back up first. And I want to ask you, like, first of all, uh, so York's, how many employees do you have? What's your footprint in Colorado? So we're still, um, we're still a small company um, by, by the industry standards, so we're under 500. Uh, but we do have locations in Washington, D.C. Um, and then we have, you know, a few other employees kind of, matter yeah. about the U.S. But you're going to build a production facility in Colorado. Yeah, we already we have several built already. Uh, so we have three built in the Aurora kind of area mm-hmm. um, de- adjacent to downtown Denver, uh, and then a much larger facility in the Denver Tech Center um, with uh, in Greenwood Village. Uh, that one's basically dedicated to production and will support a lot of our growth going forward. Got it. So you mentioned, too, that you have been in this business for a long time, working for all of the big players that people have heard of. What was the origin story of you leaving those companies and starting York? Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, it's, it's not an exciting story, but it, it it's one that kind of happened over a, a few decades. Um, it pains me to say that, but, mm. but it did happen over a couple of decades. I've always been in the segment. I've always built spacecraft, uh, launch vehicles and, and payloads, which is typically the instruments. And I did that at, at a lot of the traditional aerospace firms, but I, I think there was just something in, in, inside of me. Uh, and inside of a, a lot of people that I worked with, uh, who are now part of York, that 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 kind of cycle wasn't going to be sustainable. A ten-year cycle on billion-dollar budgets, just it wasn't going to be sustainable into the future. Particularly given, frankly, a lot of the threats that we were seeing from our adversaries. They were moving much faster, way more quickly. They were putting up capabilities. They would launch five or six in the time that we would launch one. Adversaries. What's that mean? Um, other countries. Other countries. Yeah. Other countries. Um, so we we had had some knowledge on kind of what they were doing due to some of the missions that we were working and it just became clear that their cadence they were catching up so rapidly um and and you know one quick analogy is we've seen this before with phones essentially the united states built out a giant you know network of phones that were landlines um the Mm. chinese were not there yet and so we started moving towards cellular phones and moving there they just went to cellular phones they never did the other steps yeah uh, and so we were kind of seeing similar things. They were catching up in capability. And so that was really that driver that made us start thinking about what the dynamics of the future might look like, what the country would need, and not only what the country would need, like what about Fortune 100 companies? What what would they start to need as the price dropped, as launch prices dropped, like you yeah. said? Then that means that, well, if launch prices are lower, then this, it no longer supports a billion-dollar satellite. It needs to be more affordable. Are launch Have the launch prices actually gone down or has it – is it has it gone down as a as a uh, based on a, a function of division? Now instead of only launching one or two, you can launch ten or twenty or fifty satellites. Uh, both. I mean, the reality is, is SpaceX made it go from three hundred million a launch to sixty. I mean, mm. that's a that's a substantial change. Yeah, uh, and then coupled with the fact that yes, they began dividing it up into being more granular. Um, the reality is, when the launch vehicle is three hundred million. A satellite that costs a billion, that's a that's about a, a good metric. Mm-hmm. And when the satellite costs a billion, do you want some piddly little cheap ones with you? No, you don't want any risk to your billion dollar <laughs> asset, right? Yeah. Uh, but then when the launch price came down and now launches sixty million, then the the main ride on there is say one hundred twenty million. Well, at one hundred twenty million, I might be able to let some other folks ride along to make my cost a little bit more affordable. So. 
it is this dynamic of kind of economics with demand and what started to happen there. Um, so yeah, launch price went down and then the economics of dividing it made more sense as well. Yeah. And both of those things made it to where you can launch for less than a million dollars now. Oh, I might do that then. Well, yeah, I, I have some work to do before I would be able yeah. to do that myself <laughs> as well. Well, I still down. I keep jumping ahead. Uh, but you know, what, what does happen? You know, you said it's not that exciting of a story, but when you decide, okay, the world is shifting, we need to do things cheaper, faster, uh, better, uh, especially the turnaround, right? The turn, the speed thing. So how do you go from being a guy who works at a big company to starting your own satellite company? You just build one, launch it and tell the other, the customer see, I think it's, I think it's, um, it's, it's two things. One, um, being very stubborn, um, and, and kind of believing in it when everyone tells, you no. Uh, the second part of that story is a lot of no's. Um, so we did have a lot of conversations with a lot of executives at the time of these different companies that I'd worked for talking about some of the things that we were doing. And, and it was just the story of no is essentially what it was. Uh, and at some point you, you just kind of believe that this is what it's going to be. And so I was able to raise a, a small round, um, a seed round from friends and family um, who, who luckily for me didn't know anything about space, uh, I think, cause, um, you know, they agreed to do it just based on the fact that I think probably they knew I was pretty stubborn and wasn't going to let it go. Uh, and it and started before from there. you built anything. Before I built it, it was, it was just an idea, just a concept. Yeah. And so when you went to them, what did you say? I'm going to, you, obviously you paint the picture. This is where the world's going, blah, blah, blah. And I need money. Did you quit your job? Not start. yet. I needed to raise enough. I mean, I, I had a family at the time. Yeah. So, well, so I still have a family. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> Good. Um, but yeah, I had two young daughters at the time. And I, so I, I did need something. I didn't need to be kind of making the salary that I was, but it, it, it couldn't be nothing. You know, yeah. All, yeah. all 401k and all that kind of stuff wasn't going to be enough. So I needed some amount of funds and it really was like close friends and family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a friend of mine actually from, from high school lives in New York now was, was really the one who realized I wasn't going to let it go. Mm. So he agreed and put a good amount in, which was enough that was enough for me to leap. Uh, and then got other people along as well. And then did you have to build, you built a prototype or did you, did you build a pro, did you launch something and then look for more money? No. So, you know, essentially the the concept just needed more development on what the model looks like and exactly how it's going to work and what the product that the market really wants is going to be. So a lot of that was paper. Uh, we did eventually build a prototype, did some environmental testing on it, proved that the fundamental concepts of what we were talking about, this price point that and capability was was possible, mm-hmm. right? So it, again, I, I'm really beating up the phone analogy, but you know, some Steve Jobs could have came and said like, well, this is what the future is going to be, and this is how it's going. Mm-hmm. You have to actually put that together and go, what what can yeah. you really build it for actually, yeah. and what will the actual capability be? So it was a lot of that. Yeah, but then the, the the seed money goes by, you know, before you build anything, right? At some point, there's a there's a chasm, right, between the concept and and something real. And was your next round of investors people who did they know space? Did they get? Did they actually? No, no, no. Um, so so we did the concept, and then along as the concept developed, we started to get a little more support. So there was um, some people from AFRL and some people from the army who were very helpful in the concept. And then they would, you know, basically sign letters of intent saying, we think that if this person, if they do this, mm. that there would be value to us. That makes And sense. that's yeah. what helps you kind of raise some more funding. So we were able to secure, you know, another round of, of funding there. 
um, technically it wasn't a, a round. It was a, it was a note. Uh, so it was yeah. a loan. Yeah. Um, and we built our first spacecraft on that and launched it. Uh, and then that was kind of the key tipping point at which we were able to start to win other contracts at that point. Cool. Hey, I, take a quick break. You're listening to Proco 360 named best Denver podcast three years running in the last two years, best Colorado business podcast. I'm your host, Dave Tabor. This is the show featuring entrepreneurs who could be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. My guest today is Dirk Wallinger, CEO of York Space Systems. I want to thank our sponsors. First Kinsley Meetings is Proco 360's longest running sponsors. Meetings are blasting off since the pandemic. So you know, I tied that to our guests uh, and they're doing great, but contact uh, Steve Kinsley over there and he'll help you. Uh, meetings also via technologies. Thanks for hosting Proco 360 and all the great help with uh, your guys are giving me with, uh, with the podcast hosting. It is a very data heavy site. So uh, you guys are doing great to keep it up and running. Appreciate you Colorado biz magazine. Uh, our partnership with them is one of building our audiences together and we're doing that uh, starting this year. So really appreciate my friends there at Colorado biz go to Proco 360.com and check out these sponsors. So I want to shift gears Dirk and Let's talk about now that you've got your business going, I'd like you to paint more of a picture of like what's happening with the business of satellites today, small business, low orbit. You and I talked a little bit earlier about John Deere. There's some other examples, but kind of paint a picture of some of the things that maybe are affecting our lives that would be kind of fun to understand. Yeah. So right now is a, is a really exciting time because most of the developments that we kind of discussed earlier are really starting to set in and change the dynamics of how space works. So, you know, aerospace traditionally um, was really just more of a little bit like how the auto industry was at the turn of the century. Um, they were they were beautiful pieces of hardware built for very wealthy individuals uh, on a one-off kind of basis. And that's how our industry has really been for the past five, six decades. Really exclusive, limited Really use. exclusive, limited to the very wealthy, i.e. the government's. Uh, but that's starting to change now. So with launch prices coming down, satellite capability price coming down, um, and and technology refresh rates, along with all the technology that's being developed on the terrestrial ground side, you're starting to see where commercial people are, are starting to be able to see the benefits of, of satellites. So, you know, a lot of people don't realize like alternate uh, precision navigation and timing, uh, GPS is is what that, what that is, um, has created an entire economy, right? So it's it's a space-based capability that created the shared economy, right? Uber doesn't work. Uh, DoorDash doesn't work. You know, none of those things work without GPS. And we're starting to see the next generation of that. Why do we need a next generation if it's working? Well, because the placement of GPS is not super accurate, doesn't work indoors as well. Um, so there's some challenges there. So if you are, say, UPS or Ford, um, or VW, and you you want to move your company towards data analytics and autonomous driving, okay, 10-foot accuracy does not work for you. Um, and also the, the drop losses that you get in cities between big buildings isn't going to work for you either. I mean, I think we've all seen, mm -hmm. you know, your phone can hop over three blocks if you're driving in Manhattan. That's not going to work if you're trying to navigate autonomous vehicles and maximize efficiency and avoid traffic jams. So LEO orbit is low Earth orbit where the satellites now are at, you know, 1,000 kilometers or lower. So it's much closer. GPS is at 36,000 wow. kilometers. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's, it's a big difference. So it is much lower 
And so they don't drop out. They won't, that capability will not drop out um, in building caverns and things like that. And you will have much more precise measurements, you know, within a foot, two feet kind of thing. Because it's that much closer to. That's right. Okay. Here's my first of a series of what will be stupid questions. (laughs) If you're in low earth orbit, like, isn't the earth's gravity going to pull more on, on those satellites? That's why you go much faster. Uh, so, so you're, you're exactly right. If, if you're looking at a so tennis ball on a string, centrifugal, centrifugal force, gravity does pull you in a lot more. And that's why those satellites in Leo go about 17,000 miles an hour, um, you know, around the earth. And so they'll circle the earth in an hour and a half. Does that make it harder to coordinate a constellation? It does. Going to, uh, it does. So that means you need a lot more of them, uh, and you need them basically networked. And that's where, you know, I was talking about this balance between the technology advancements terrestrially, what's happening on Earth, and then what what's happening in space. That's where those two things meet. Uh, we understand how to route IP traffic and things like that now because of the Internet and all that. And so now you're expanding that up one generation. So now when you have hundreds of, we'll call them terminals, which are now satellites mm, in LEO, mm. we have the technology now that can route that traffic if quickly and efficiently, which is what's required. So if they're going that fast, and you're driving a John Deere tractor that's taking the telemetry or whatever, taking, you know, it's, it's uploading information about soil moisture or yield or whatever it's doing. It's talking to a different satellite every few seconds, probably. That's right. Uh, and those satellites are networked to one another with lasers, um, which obviously travels at the speed of light. So essentially you're talking to a node and then it is passing it off through the network all the way to the ground to the, oh, the John That's Deere data center. That's kind of mind-blowing. It, it's, it's very crazy. So does John Deere have its own like thousand satellites circling or how does that? So right now they're using existing capability. Uh, and that's kind of meeting their needs of demonstrations and things like that. But they're really lean, you know, a forward-leaning company. And so mm-hmm. they are pushing the edge of this kind of complete network topology that would be required to so do this. So a company like, I'm just getting my head around this, though, so a company that's going to use lots of data from low Earth orbit, they can either use a shared, leased, whatever, like piggyback with a thousand companies onto a constellation like that, or they are there some that are going to have their own? I, I do think, yeah. Like I, that? I actually think that's the way it's moving. You can use a shored resource, um, which would be in the geostationary orbit, so it'd be even further away. Um, you can use that, but there's latency delays from the information going that far and coming back and also the accuracy. So if you're autonomously driving, let's say, a car or a tractor, any delay in information telling you you're about to run someone over, that's mm-hmm. a big deal. Uh, and so your future capabilities are dependent on time and accuracy. Yeah, but it's, I mean, I, th- I thought like autonomous vehicles aren't necessarily related. Like if there's a person that walks in front of a car, that image doesn't go to a satellite and come back, does it? Isn't the vehicle itself or a tractor itself detecting, you know, somebody it, it, there? It can, but there's limits to that capability. So say, you know, we'll move on from the tractor. We'll say you're okay. doing a, a piece of machinery that's that's digging, you know, it's going to make houses or what have you. There's like a pile of dirt there or something. You know, there's a lot of different challenges that, you know, a standard roadway, that's one thing. Yes, mm-hmm. this car can stop because you know there's pavement there. It makes certain assumptions about what's around it. But if you're operating in a field um, in the middle of South America mm-hmm. where there isn't connectivity and there's grass everywhere or things in your way, it it doesn't know what those are. So that's are. where satellite. That's where you need some wow. external, 
you know, you need some more information in that mm. situation to understand what needs to happen there. Interesting. I'm, uh, I'm just, I have a picture of my head as you describe this Dirk of like thousands, thousands yeah. of low earth, ab, uh, low earth, earth orbit satellites, like thousands, tens no, I, of thousands. I, that, that's, that's what it'll be for sure. Come on. Really? Um, yeah. I mean, you already see it even, I mean, people take for granted how amazing just your cell phone is. I mean, you talked about, well, it's got a handoff to one or the other. Your mm -hmm. cell phone does that. Yeah. That's exactly what it so does. So how many satellites do you think are in the spa are in space right now? Well, you're, I, I would wager a guess, but I'd probably be wrong. So I, I'd, I'd rather not. But it's it's in the thousands. I mean, it's increased significantly in the, thousands, in the past. Yeah. In the it's, it's in more of the tens or hundreds probably at this point. Tens um, of thousands perhaps now of yeah. satellites. Yeah. Well, Starlink alone is going towards 7,000 just for theirs. Wow. Um, that doesn't include some of the other ones as well. And and at this point, there's really no specific governing body that, like, air traffic control, is there? Or is there? There are some requirements for disposal. Um, so the general standard from NASA is, ah, it has to come in on its own for 25 years. They're starting to reinvestigate that because, you know, the, the pace of technology yeah. has, has kind of warranted that, that that's not the best rule anymore. Um, but before you launch, as part of your launch license, is you have to show how you're going to deorbit. Oh, so you have to have a license. Yeah, yeah. But does every country have their own thing for licensing? Um, they do. There's um, not an intergalactic no, governmental no. entity. No, the only one like that is the ITU, which has to do with your radio frequencies. Mm. Um, but but you know, there's only so many countries that actually yeah, can yeah. launch. I suppose. Uh, so but... that that's helpful, and they tend to follow the same rules. But yeah, I mean, they they check that your analysis is done properly, that it mm. will come in. You know, you have to make sure that a, a piece of metal is not going to come in and hit someone in the head. Um, so all that work yeah. is done and is is part of what you do before you even launch. Wow. All right. You're listening to Proco 360. I'm your host, Dave Tabor. This is the podcast featuring entrepreneurs who can be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. This episode's with Dirk Wallinger, CEO of York Space Systems. Go to Proco360.com to subscribe to my newsletter, read my blog, link to sponsors, and catch the books I'm listening to on Audible. And now I'm shifting gears to uh, the part where I really, if I haven't already, show how little I know about satellites. i got a series of questions for you about that. Um, one thing I wonder, like, is a satellite, how much customization is in a satellite? Is it more like kind of like an Xbox where you then plug in software? Is it like a common thing or is each satellite kind of designed based on what a customer wants? A little bit of both. So well, that, that's that, an easy and yeah, unfair yeah. answer. Well, but I'll, I'll, I'll get a little right. more specific. So um, that's kind of what we're changing uh, because historically, yeah, they were each unique. Every single one was different. Uh, and now we, what we have done is taken the part that performs most of those kind of capabilities and standardize that. Uh, and that's where we fit. So um, satellites are really two different pieces. There's what's called the satellite bus and then the instrument or payload. The instrument or payload is the part that's either transmitting signals that you want or taking pictures or it's kind of doing the specific mission. But there's a lot of parts of a typical satellite that every satellite needs. They all need power. They all need communication with the ground. They all need software. They all need um, attitude control subsystems, which tells my point. So that's the part that we build that is standard. And then those they interface to the instruments, and we're standardizing that as well so that mm. you can plug in um, the different things. So I actually, now that I think about it and you mentioned it, it is a little bit like the game console. Well, maybe I'm old, so I, I ah. think of it more like the Nintendo one, but there's the 
there's the Nintendo box, right? And then the specific thing that you want to do is the game that you plug in. Yeah. So it is a little bit like that. Um, now, we're not quite there. We're not quite at the Nintendo console, but we're working to get there where most of the capabilities are there and you're plugging in the specific instrument or, or application yeah. that you need done. Well, I would think then the extension of that is if that happens, then, you know, customer A says, I'm done. You could then upload software for customer B and play a different game. The, the different part there is that it isn't just software. It is software. Like, yeah. you do need that. But the reality is if it has a camera on there oh yeah, sure. uh, you're, and you want to take a picture, you can't upload software to make it a communication satellite. Sure. Got the hardware yeah, yeah, is just yeah. not there. So uh, yeah. you yeah. can do that within reason, um, but there's going to be limit. There's going to be physical sure. physics limits to that. Yeah. Now, um, what's a satellite? Now, you're, I, you just have to estimate. What's a satellite cost that you sell? Give us like a reasonable range. Yeah, they range anywhere from about um, three million to fifteen million per. Really, for a refrigerator sized? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, and you know we've done like like I said a lot of that standard edition was part of that. Um, and you know we've had a lot of good customers help us to kind of ramp up quantities of scale, which are an important piece of that yeah. as well. Now, when a customer, generally, the customers know what they want a satellite to do before you build it or do you help them figure out what here's what a satellite can do on the commercial side of things they understand what their needs are they don't understand anything else other than that yeah so when they kind of discuss with us their problems and their challenges that's where we develop a solution for them that makes so that's sense. kind of how that industry works the government definitely knows what it wants. Yeah. Uh, and then it writes a contract and then asks for more. No, <laughs> I'm, ju I'm just kidding. <laughs> but no, they definitely know what they want. And then they they work with us to try and maximize that kind of capability for what they're looking for. So you talked early in this conversation that it used to take 10 years to build something. If somebody comes to you now and says, we need a satellite or we need a solution that delivers this information. And they come to you with that. Is it a year later that it gets launched? It, it, it can be done in a year. I would say a year and a half is probably on average. All right. And how much does a satellite that's once it's in orbit, how much does it have to be controlled once it's in orbit? Well, so we've done a lot of work and that's all in software into things. And so we've done a lot of work on our side and invested in that kind of capability pretty early to make that as autonomous as possible. Uh, now, the challenge there is that if it's a it's a government customer, you might be working with legacy systems, which are not as autonomous. And so there's a little bit of juggling that has to be done by tr trying to take advantage of um, as much autonomy as possible while still making it backwards compatible. I'm not sure what autonomy means, meaning they fly without you or that you can control they them? They fly without us. Uh, it, it knows what it's supposed to do. Um, you can generally, um, with one of our satellites, you know, you task like these, it's a, that one takes pictures. And so in that case, you would say, I want to take pictures of these things. Here's my priority. This one's really important. This one's not as important. Hmm. It will go figure out its orbit. It will go figure out when it can take those pictures. And using the priority that it did, it will take those pictures uh, and then download it. Wow. Uh, and so it's completely autonomous short of you telling it what your priorities are. So you're building are. sort of early AI, AI into... Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, but I was very... Hes they, they named that system V'ger originally, which was a little hesitant because um, I you know, said, did you see the movie? Did you, <laughs> the machines took over. That's not what we want. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> so, but, but it is, it, it is that kind of capability. So do they have little propulsion systems in them? They do. 
Um, so it, it depends on the units, but yeah, pretty much all the ones we fly now do have propulsion systems. Like but with they, fuel or solar powered or how does there's electric, there's hydrazine, there's all kinds of different types. But what they also have is an attitude control subsystem, and that has um, that does not need propulsion, and it can orientate the vehicle to point where you need it to point. So it mm. uses things like reaction wheels and IMUs. Um, but there's no there's no friction up there, so it has to have thrust. So it, is is it, there such a thing as electric created thrust? We do have those systems, but to step back, <laughs> uh, you don't necessarily need thrust to maneuver um, to point where you want to point. Um, you know Newton's. You know, if you have a reaction wheel and you turn it one way, the thing it's attached to turns the opposite way. And so what we have is three reaction wheels for each axis, X, Y, and Z. And so when you go to turn the reaction wheel, it means the spacecraft spins the other way uh, because it's an opposing force. So the fact that there is no gravity or nothing holding it down is why it can kind of point around on its own. You but need point the, around, but how about changes in altitude? Yes, so that is where you need the propulsion. So if you're ah, changing yeah. altitude, then yes, you need you need thrust and you need a propulsion system, um, of which ours are equipped with several different options for for that kind of keep. Because I would think that's how they deorbit, right? Is push yep. in the bad way. That's right. Push towards Earth. That's right. Wow. Okay, that's cool. Now, one other thing, I still need to make sure I understand before we wrap up. It it does seem so. In ten years, are there going to be like? A million, well, maybe not a million, tens of thousands of satellites just whirling around in low Earth orbit, and like, how do the they? The short keep answer from... is is yes, um, but but you know, it seems kind of wild west almost up there. I wouldn't I wouldn't classify it that way. Um, there's responsible people and responsible actors, York being one of them, and we deorbit our capability when it's done. Uh, made that commitment to ourselves, but you know, people kind of said we, tens of thousands sounds like a lot. But the Earth in space is very big. The reality is there's only been, I think, two collisions in the entire history um, of, of satellites hitting one another. Um, and so that's a, that's a pretty darn good record for seven mm-hmm. decades. Now, technology will advance um, as more and more satellites go up there. So people said the same thing about cars, right? Mm-hmm. They were just driving around, no stoplights, no nothing. There's horses and cars together. Um, but as we've developed cities and you had congested areas, we developed technologies to help avoid collisions, right? Safety regulations. So all that will be part of it too. And people need to remember that. You don't, you don't just, it isn't still the wild west, right? Like we have rules and regulations for how to help avoid that. And in addition, the the reality is if you, you know, take that automotive analogy and and look at it, you know, the reality is, yeah, there is a lot of cars in New York. There's a lot of cars in, in LA, but the reality is the whole middle of the United States, mm. how many cars per, per acre are you seeing there? Yeah, yeah, Not yeah. a whole lot. And so you'll have similar kind of things happen in space around the poles, around the north and the south. It will be very congested and it's going to have to be very regulated and controlled. And other orbits are just not going to be as congested. We'll still have similar rules, but they're just not going to be as condensed. I guess if we look at your at your metaphor or analogy, I never know. I'm talking about New York City or L.A. or whatever where it's congested. They People crash, like, all day, every day. Yeah. And, and, you know, you got millions of dollars of satellites up there. You don't want to crash. No, you absolutely don't. <laughs> and so we're that's why, you know, they're making innovations today on hoping to avoid that. So they're starting to be innovations where satellites can kind of notify one another mm. that, hey, we're starting to project this is going to happen. Let's do something about it. Yeah. 
Uh, there's also some constellations out there today that exist that already are starting to take the autonomous capabilities to maneuver out of the way. Um, so that's going to be a huge part is, is, is a larger network of different companies and entities talking Mm -hmm. to one another to make sure that that doesn't happen. I could see that. I mean, it would make perfect sense that whoever's invested in putting up satellites would then pay this other company for detection avoidance. I mean, for yeah, avoidance detection and, Mm -hmm. you know, to, to help manage that network. I would think that those companies will come and they'll be successful and, yeah, I mean, there's 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 third party uh, that could be an option as well. But there's also if you had some type of registry, mm-hmm. um, then say you know Starlink might tell that registry this is where all our satellites are and these are our projections where we're going to be. And if every company did the same, then you can start to identify them autonomously subscribe. yourself. Yeah, yeah. Huh. It sounds like somebody's going to make a lot of money on that eventually too. Yeah, but yep. Uh, has to be done. Hey, your uh, last few questions. You're you're based in Colorado, um, Colorado we both know is the number one state per capita for aerospace jobs. I mean, and you mentioned very early in our conversation, you're building a manufacturing plant south of, of Denver. So what's your take on your ability to get talent, to grow your business here in Colorado? Yeah. I mean, Colorado is, is fantastic for all of that. Uh, it's very desirable. Um, you know, the mountains, just the kind of culture, it, it has a great mix of, uh, my wife and I actually moved here from New York so, and, but we grew up in Arizona. Um, so Colorado kind of represents that really great mix of, you know, a lot of the amenities and culture, um, great museums and things that you would get in a, in a good sized city, but still being a little bit more relaxed. You yeah, know, yeah. I, I'm not uh, shoving people on the six train in New York anymore. It's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a much better vibe here. So, uh, and then, you know, highly educated folks, uh, who enjoy the outdoors. Um, so in, in a good community. So while I, I may compete, with uh, some of the other companies here. Um, they also make a lot of great talent and hopefully we do the same. So it's just a really healthy ecosystem um, that enables you to attract great talent that already exists, but then also be able to attract some um, from, from outside the state. Yeah. It seems like, you know, aerospace is so well developed in Colorado that people who want that mix, you know, can come here knowing that they can get a job, that they can change jobs, they can advance the careers. With we, the don't, they com- don't, we don't want them to change jobs. They don't uh, want not if they're stay. at York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not <laughs> if they're at York. Yeah. But they could change jobs and go to work at York if yeah. they decided. Yeah. So um, last question. I mean, the future of space um, to me is so fascinating. When you, If you were to chunk this out into five years down, 10 years down, uh, 100 years out, you know, I mean, what does that, uh, what does that look like? Uh, I mean, I, I think in, in five years, you're going to see commercial space, the Fortune 100, having their own capabilities in space. That that for sure will be a thing. Not launch, but their own, they'll own their own satellites. And if things if like they that. don't own, I don't, the commercial side, I don't think will own their own satellites, but they will have dedicated resources. So a company like UARC would operate them on their behalf, mm. um, supplying them a dedicated cybersecurity network mm. or a dedicated communications network. That will definitely happen within the next five. It might even be less. A hundred years, um, you're just going to see complete networked, um, completely autonomous networked, just giant networks of capability um, transferring data. Um, And and, and quite frankly, you know, I I think the concern is some of the stuff that we touched on a little bit that we're not going to ruin a great resource there, that everyone's going to be very responsible about what's happening um, but also, you know, I, I think um, I'm dating myself a little bit, but I, I watched a lot of 80s movies. And so I, I do want to make sure the machines don't take over because I, I think that the capability they will provide will be almost scary. 
Well, um, you mentioned the nefarious potential, right? Yep. Well, I mean, we see that with the internet, right? I mean, there's tons of exciting things about the internet that are really, really great, provided education to a lot of people who might not have been able to go to libraries or or, or, or afford different capabilities. They, they now have their fingers on that, but there's a lot of bad stuff too. People yeah. use it to hack yeah. oil lines. People use it um, for a lot of bad things too. And so I, I don't think space will be any different than that. Um, but I, I do hope that we learn from a lot of the lessons from the internet and um, try, try and think about that a little bit, apply it a little bit better um, to help make sure that that space doesn't become like that. Yeah. I think that's uh, that'll be an interesting challenge. We're already dealing with it with the internet now, but now, you know, it seems like with, all, well, I suppose, you know, encryption through, through space and from space to earth and back and so forth. I mean, it's, I suppose, theoretically, it's similar to, you know, protecting our data now. Yeah, it, it is. But I, I do think there's already folks learning from what happened with the internet in the sense of, look, the network, you know, the internet was, that's free to everyone. It's going to be great. And, uh, and, and everyone is attached to it, which also means everyone can hack it. And so I think that is what the new commercial companies are realizing is if I have my own dedicated network, um, it's very hard to hack it when they're, they're not touching it. They're never interacting with it. They're never doing anything. So there is already some lessons from the internet being applied in space in the sense of a castle with no doors is very hard to break into as opposed to the internet where it's a free marketplace. Everyone's there. It's very easy for anyone to be a bad actor. So that's what you see. You see for individual companies creating their own castles with no doors using space as the mechanism for data transfer. When it comes to cybersecurity, I could see that being value added to people. Yes. Wow. That's so cool. All right. We'll talk again in a hundred years. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to wrap up for today. I'm your host, Dave Tabor. Today on Proco 360, you've been listening to my conversation with Dirk Wallinger, CEO of York Space Systems. Dirk, thank you. Um, uh, thanks for tolerating all my basic questions about satellite space and all that kind of cool stuff. No, I appreciate it. They were, they were obviously really great questions. And, and like I said, I, I'm happy to answer them. My, my kids and most other people care less. So I appreciate oh, it. <laughs> are you kidding? This is like, this is the future. So uh, I, I'm glad we could talk about it. Listeners, glad you're here with us on Proco 360, where we say live, work, love Colorado, because you and I and my guests can be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. You make the show successful by subscribing to the Proco 360 podcast. And if you haven't yet, it's a huge help if you submit a review in your app. Thanks again to show sponsors, Kinsley Meetings, Via Technologies, and Colorado Biz Magazine. That's the show. Live, work, and wait, what is it? Live long and prosper, right? How do you? I'm yeah, holding up yeah, my finger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and live, work, love, Colorado.